well, thanks everyone for coming. Um, as Julian said, I, I just completed a postdoc in um, work on attention and action with Benson and I, who's also at the University of Cambridge, is at the University of Antwerp and University of Cambridge. And in about a, actually a few weeks, I'll be starting a new position at the University of California at Merced, um, an assistant professor position there. So I'm in between jobs right now. I'm, I'm jobless. I guess. <laughs> um, so the title of this talk is Attention, Action, and Responsibility. Um, the core question of the talk is this one here. Does action require attention? To answer that question, obviously, you'd have to have an understanding of what I meant by action and what I meant by attention, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but on this slide, I want to talk a little bit more about why one should be interested in this question in the first place. Like, why should you care um, whether or not action requires attention? One reason you might care about, about this question is if you think that action has close ties to responsibility, which I think is an uncontroversial claim. If you think that action has close ties to responsibility, moral responsibility in particular, um, then a positive answer to this question would um, would sit nicely with the practice, the legal practice, of allowing for diminished responsibility to those criminals who have ADHD. This is a common practice, at least in the United States. I don't know about the United Kingdom. <coughs> a negative answer to this question, on the other hand, wouldn't give you an answer as to whether or not somebody with diminished attentional capacities, like someone with ADHD, should or should not um, have full, be, given, be assumed to have full moral responsibility. <laughs> okay, so that's at least one, one issue that ties up to neuroethics and neurolaw. But there will be other issues that will come up towards the end of the talk. All right. Um, so just to kind of extend the example that I just gave of ADHD a bit further, I want you to imagine um, a more philosophical example of someone with super ADHD, a criminal with super ADHD. And again, this will come back at the end of the talk. And... Um, I'm interested in part whether a person with super ADHD is a person who can't control the focus of their attention at all, has no control over where their mind is directed, whether that person has any moral responsibility. Okay, so I'll start with some working definitions. In general, the working definitions that I use, I try to use the senses of the terms that I take to be common sense, um, and also that fit specialist needs for those terms. So for action, I decided to use a definition from Patrick Haggard and Helen Johnson. As they say, an action is defined as a movement of the body resulting from specific mental preparation and aimed at some goal that the agent desires to achieve. So this working definition has three main components. Um, the first is that it's a movement of the body. This is not to, um, to ignore or deny the fact that there are mental actions, but rather to focus here on bodily actions, um, as those, I think, are the most relevant um, sense of action in this case. Second, the second component would be that actions are something that result from a specific mental preparation. This doesn't mean that the preparation has to be conscious or deliberate in my sense, so I'm leaving that open. And then finally, that actions are normally directed towards goals. Okay, so that's a, the kind of general sense of action that I mean. When I talk about attention, I actually decided to use the Wikipedia 
um, the first line of the Wikipedia entry on attention, and I did that because the definition of attention is extremely controversial, as you may know. Um, this is Attention is my, my kind of central topic, so I've even written a full paper on how we should understand the word attention. Um, and I decided to use Wikipedia because it's publicly editable, and I've found that because it's publicly editable, if there's a very controversial topic, you can often find a little bit of stability within that controversy. So I took the first line from Wikipedia. Um, it says, attention is a cognitive process of selectively concentrating on one aspect of the environment while ignoring other things. So there's two basic components to this definition. The first is this concept of selection. So attention is normally thought to be some, some type of selection. Um, that's not very controversial. I would, I would add a little bit more to that and say that um, the type of selection that's relevant is this sense of prioritization or biasing. So normally it's a prioritization or biasing of the preferred over the non-preferred elements, which is picked out by this sense of ignoring other things. Both are worked into the definition. Um, and then second of all, the second component is that it's a cognitive process of selection. It's not just any selection. It's a special type of selection. That's important to the definition because there are, we use the term selection sometimes for worldly selection, like natural selection, but the word attention specifically picks out um, mental selections. And so normally there's some word like this cognitive to indicate that we're talking about mental selections and not just any type of selection. Okay. So they're just very general definitions. Um, how would one go about applying these very general definitions to anything like a particular case, um, a case that you might find in phenomenology, psychology, or neuroscience? I'll give you some sense of that here, how you could apply these specific definitions. So starting with action, um, Okay, so action, um, I'll start with the phenomenology. Action is normally felt as a centering of one's body um, around some target or goal. So I'll say that there's normally a felt intention, like a felt intention to shoot, for example, a target, and um, the experience of being, having your body be centered around that particular goal. But not always. In some cases, in some types of lesions, for example, you don't have the felt intention um, despite having action. And in some cases, you're trying to perform multiple actions at once, and so there isn't the kind of bodily centering that you normally have. Okay. In terms of behavior, um, we sometimes <coughs> study in behavior, um, behavioral reflex and contrast that with action and use behavioral reflex to determine when you have action or not. There are some reflexes that are very well studied and commonly accepted not to be actions. Um, but the problem with this approach is that most behaviors are a mix of reflexive and non-reflexive elements, so it's not always clear um, when something counts as a reflex and when it counts as a, as a full-blown action. Finally, you can look at the brain um, for neural signatures of action. I would say that it's minimally supposed that for something to be an action, you have to have a signal from the premotor cortex to the motor cortex, to the brainstem. Um, I can talk about that if you guys like after. All right, so moving to attention. So similarly, I want to apply it to these three domains. Um, I think that attention is normally felt as a, um, an emphasis on the preferred within experience and a de-emphasis of the non-preferred elements within experience. Something like a highlighting of the preferred elements within experience. Um, but again, not always. In some cases, you get this same 
difference or highlighting um, from things that have nothing to do with attention. And sometimes you confuse um, these changes for changes that um, happened in the world as in the Marissa Carrasco experiments. Okay, and behavior, you can sometimes pick out attention by looking at bodily orientation. So for example, eye gaze. Sometimes you can use eye gaze to tell whether or not someone is paying attention to you, but not always because sometimes eye gaze can shift, sorry, attention can shift without eye gaze shifting. So there are actually some more sophisticated techniques for trying to pick out attention like the, um, the positive cueing paradigm, if you're familiar with that. But those, um, those attempts to pick out um, attention with an experience are incomplete and, and that attempt's ongoing. All right, finally, you can look at the brain again to try to, to separate attention from non-attention. Um, I would say that it's most commonly accepted that to be attention that you have a, some feedback from the prefrontal areas to other areas of the brain through the parietal cortex. Okay, so those would be applications of those working definitions um, to those three domains. All right, so with those definitions in mind, I want to record, return to that core question of the talk. Does attention, um, does action require attention? <laughs> Before I tell you what I think, uh, which I hope I haven't done yet, um, I wanted to get a, a quick hand count and to see what your like, gut intuitions are on this point. Um, so if you think that action does require attention, could you raise a hand, please? Is that, is that <laughs> a half hand? <laughs> okay, two. Um, and if you think that action does not require attention, could you raise your hand? All right, okay, so I wasn't expecting that. Um, Unfortunately, I can't make an argument against the majority <laughs> here because I'm with you. Um, but we're going to assume that it went the other way. And actually, most people thought <laughs> that action does require attention. All right. Uh, so just forget what I just, what I just did. Um, all right. So I would have guessed that most philosophers think that um, action does require attention. There's one philosopher who um, is best known, I think, for giving a yes answer to that question, and that's Wayne Wu. Um, Wayne Wu has written several articles and a forthcoming book on this very topic of whether action requires attention. He argues that, um, that attention is necessary for action um, by arguing through what he calls the many-many problem. And with the many-many problem, he divides, he creates basically this dichotomy between attentive action and reflexive behavior. So all types of bodily movements are one or the other type. All right. Um, the many-many problem, which is the technique you use to get to this dichotomy, is a problem. Is the problem basically of having too many targets and too many responses to those targets, such that you have to, in order to act, select a single target response pair. Okay. So, for imagine, for example, that I'm very thirsty but I also want to wash my hands. In order, to, in order to act at all, I'm going to have to decide on one of two targets, soap or glass. And um, one of two responses to those targets, um, picking up the glass to, well, let's say, picking up the glass to fill with water or rubbing my hands together with the soap in them. I can't do both because one requires both hands and one requires at least one hand. So in order to act at all, I'm going to have to choose one 
um, target response pairing out of those two possible target response pairings. Okay. So what Wu claims is that um, action requires a solution to the many, many problem and that the only function capable of providing the solution is attention. And that's how you get at this dichotomy between attentive action, action that requires attention, and reflexive behavior, which is all behavior that doesn't, doesn't have the many, many problem. All right, so what Wu says... Action requires that the many, many problem be solved by reducing the many, many set of options to a specific mapping between target and response. Throughout the execution of action, the agent must continue to perceptually select and hence attend to relevant information so as to guide the execution of specific movements. Since perceptual attention is a necessary part of solving the many, many problem, it is a necessary part of action. Okay. So in contrast, reflexive behavior to see the necessity of the many, many problem for agency, consider a world whose creatures do not face the problem. The presentation of possibilities is denied to them. To the extent that they exhibit bodily behaviors in response to the environment, this must be driven by preset one-to-one mappings between stimulus and response. If these creatures are in possession of a variety of preset stimulus-response mappings, they may exhibit a certain complexity in behavior over time. Nevertheless, their behavior does not count as action for they are driven by what are essentially a set of reflexes, and these, I take it, never exemplify agency. So that's Wu's view. I took these quotes in particular from his newspaper because I think they nicely set up this contrast that he drives, um, but actually you can find the same wording and the same argument um, in other places, including in chapter three of his forthcoming book. All right, so what I want to push in this talk is an alternative thesis, an alternative to that dichotomy. <coughs> and some of you may already um, suppose that there must be some alternative to that dichotomy, <coughs> but I'll be presenting the specific one. So I'm going to be arguing that there are forms of action that do not require attention, such as action through skilled behavior. Um, these forms of action sit nicely right in between the dichotomy that I just presented. Um, to motivate my alternative thesis, I'll start by challenging Wu's Argument, and then I'll move on to presenting um, some independent reason for believing this alternative thesis. Okay, so starting with, with Wu's argument. So, as you just saw, Wu argues that attention is necessary for action because first, action requires solving the many, many problem. It is otherwise reflex. Um, sorry. Okay. Wu motivates this claim by considering the nature of action, which he thinks requires the selection of a target and a response out of many um, target response pairings. Why would anybody believe this? Um, The idea crops up elsewhere in philosophy, such as in the work of Henri Bergson, who claims that selection is needed to apply the infinite mind to the finite body. That is, to apply the mind which has infinite possibilities to the body that has finite possibilities. The basic presumption, I think, in Bergson is that action requires a free will, and that the freeness of the will relies on flexibility, hence this infinite mind or mind of infinite possibilities. Um, against, against that idea, um, what distinguishes action from reflex, I want to claim, is not this flexibility, but rather intention. And this is actually admitted by Wu in that same paper. Oh, actually, this is in a different paper. 
This is in um, the compilation with uh, Christopher Mole and Declan Smithies. He says, in that paper, which is arguing for a similar point, the relevant conception of action in the first instance is intentional action. So if it's central to action is intention rather than this flexibility that you might think um, freeness of the will requires, then, um, then you have a different essence to action than the one that has been set up so far. And we have no reason yet to believe that intention requires flexibility rather than freeness of the will. All right, so I'll try to, to give a reason to, to suspect that presupposition. Um, consider, for example, a monk who uses a candle for focused meditation. Imagine that the monk intends to focus his mind entirely on the candle until hearing the sound of a bell that marks the end of his meditation. Although at first the monk may have targets and responses to those targets um, other than the candle and the meditation, over time, the monk may no longer have these multiple targets and responses. That may even be the aim of his meditative practice. It still seems that the monk acts in so meditating, since the monk intends to meditate and meditates based on that intention, despite lacking flexible response once embarking on a session of skilled meditation until that sound of the ending bell. If this is right, it is not flexibility and freedom that determine the presence of action, but intention. All right. So moving to the second claim. Well, the second claim is that only attention can solve the many, many problem because attention just is selection. Udmar Newman, who Wu cites, um, argued 30 years before Wu that attention improves this process of selection, but that it's not necessary for it. Um, what divides Wu from Newman is that although Wu distinguishes attentive selection from other forms of selection, such as the selection of a gumball from a gumball machine. So Wu says, okay, not every form of selection is attention. There are these forms of selection, like the selection of a gumball through a gumball machine that don't count as attention. But nonetheless, <coughs> Wu wants to argue that every case of perceptual selection, it is attention. And that is a, that's a distinction between he and Newman. Um, I, like Newman and many others, consider attention to be this special kind of um, selection, which is not... <coughs> necessarily captured by perceptual selection, but which is captured by something closer to cognitive selection. If you think that attention is captured by something a little bit stricter, like cognitive selection, then um, you might think that you can get a solution to the many, many problem that he raises without invoking attention. Okay, consider, for example, someone who eats ice cream while sleepwalking. Is the eating of ice cream controlled by cognitive selection? I wouldn't say so. I would say that it is controlled by selective processes that occur outside of cognition. Why so? The sleepwalker is sleeping. She won't remember eating the ice cream. Um, any interference with other knowledge that she might have, such as the fact that she's lactose intolerant or the fact that actually it's not ice cream, it's sour cream that she put in the ice cream container, um, is minimal at best probably completely absent. Nonetheless, it seems as though something like the many, many problem is being solved when she eats the ice cream, or whatever it is. At the very least, Wu needs to provide more reason to think that attention, rather than other forms of selection, are required to solve the many, many problem. All right. So I think these challenges give some reason to doubt Wu's argument in favor of um, 
this connection, this dichotomy between attentive action and reflexive behavior. But obviously, this is a negative argument. It's an argument against Wu's particular reasoning. And I'm going to go further than that. I'll give you some positive reasons to think that the alternative thesis is true. Okay. So the alternative, um, sorry, the the independent reasons to think that the alternative thesis is true will come from reflections on skilled behavior. All right, so what is skilled behavior? All right. Skilled behavior is behavior that comes about after a practice of <coughs> performing that behavior. Take, for instance, driving. Most of us are very familiar with driving. Um, you've probably been driving for many years. You've probably driven in multiple cars. I don't know if it's true it is the UK. Um, but in the US, we are all drivers. Um, and um, yeah, you've driven in multiple conditions on many roads and many cars. You could probably be called an expert driver. Um, so at this point, I would claim that your driving constitutes a skilled behavior. Such behavior has many qualities that distinguish it from unskilled behavior. You can take, for example, the difference between a novice driver and a skilled driver, like perhaps ourselves. One such quality is processing efficiency. Um, it is safer for an experienced driver or skilled driver to hold a conversation while driving than it is for a novice driver to hold a conversation while driving. Um, not necessarily while holding a phone, but just imagine that there's someone sitting in the car with you, having a conversation with you. It's safer for the experienced driver to do that than for the novice driver. <coughs> And that's because the processing required to do the driving task is more efficient than the processing for the novice driver. That is, it uses <coughs> fewer processing resources. This does not mean that the experienced driver would be better able to hold a conversation while playing a video game or chess than the inexperienced driver. All right. So this quality of efficiency in skilled behavior has been studied in psychology and neuroscience through a particular paradigm called the dual task paradigm. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this paradigm. Um, but it basically involves two tasks, which is why it's called the dual task paradigm. One task is controlled for um, performance. So they'll look at your reaction times and your accuracy levels. And um, they'll try to keep those at a constant. So for example, 80% is a percent that many people use. So if your accuracy is at around 80%, um, then they'll keep the difficulty of that task at the same level. But if your accuracy starts to reach, say, 90%, then they'll make the task harder. So there's one task that's controlled for performance, uh, for difficulty. But then a second task is not controlled for difficulty, but trained. And what they do is they, they get you to perform um, these tasks together and separately over many days. And they continue normally to, um, to have you practicing both tasks until you get to the point where you can perform both tasks together without any loss to either. So when you get to the point where your accuracy, say, um, is 80% on one task, um, whether you perform it alone or with the other task, and the other, the other task, let's say, is that, I don't know, 75% alone or with the other task, then you can stop the experiment, if that makes sense. Um, all right. So... So I'll talk about one such experiment, um, but there's, there's many of these dual task experiments. Um, so in one such experiment, there are these three theorists, um, Elizabeth Spelke, William Hurst, and Ulrich Nieser, who looked at participants. These are just two of the participants, but they looked at many participants over a long period of time. I think it was a year and a half, actually, if I remember that right. Um, and they trained them to both 
be able to read while at the same time that is simultaneously taking um, words from dictation. And um, at the end of this process, the participants were able to, they claim, to do both tasks as, ef as efficiently as they could do either alone. So this is what they say. Diane and John appear able to copy words, detect relations among words, and categorize words for meaning while reading as effectively and as rapidly as they could read alone. So they, they not only kept, they not only looked at accuracy and reaction time, but they also looked at um, semantic comprehension afterwards. So, so they gave them tests to see whether or not their reading comprehension was as good with the two tasks together as it was for the tasks apart. And they trained them until they could do, to do them um, at the same time. All right, so um, they conclude from this finding, that is, Spelke, Hurst, and Nieser conclude from this finding that um, the, their participants learned to split their attention between the two tasks, that that's what they were trained to do. Um, but I think that there's a, an alternative hypothesis that's much more promising. This alternative hypothesis is actually mentioned by um, Spelke, Hurst, and Nieser under the guise of referring to these theorists, Solomons and Stein. Um, and they, they say of Solomons and Stein that these theorists suggested that one learns to read and write simultaneously by training attention from one of the tasks. These are some earlier theorists. So I think the alternative hypothesis that is more promising is that the participants, as they are trained, learn to sometimes alternate attention between the tasks and sometimes perform one task, namely the dictation task, automatically, and the other task with their attention. Why do I think that that's more promising than the, than the explanation actually given by Spelke, Hurst, and Nieser? Well, one reason is because of the reports of their participants. And as they admit, their participants say of themselves that sometimes they thought clearly about each dictated word, but on other occasions they said they were unaware of even writing. <coughs> and if you look at Solomons and Stein, they say that, they that a characteristic of automatic writing is that you cease to be aware of it. So they say they, they consider their writing to be automatic when they learn the dual task when they cease to be aware of it. So this is at least some kind of promising reason to think that um, Spelke, Hurst, and Nieser's participants were doing something like that. Okay, so this is all consistent with the hypothesis that the participants sometimes alternated attention and other times did not use attention at all, um, but made use of the fact that it, the dictation task was a skilled behavior by performing it automatically. So this ability to perform a task entirely automatically is the end result of, skilled, of practicing skilled behavior. Before you get to that end result, there are differences in degree from full attention. And these are some of the characteristics of those differences in degree um, that come out when you look at many of these experiments. So one is this phenomenology of decreased awareness. As you become more proficient in the task, you report that you seem to be less aware of that task and more aware of other things that you want to be doing. Similarly, as you become more skilled in the task, you have a behavioral signature of um, the slow removal of interference with other tasks. So you're able to perform other tasks at the same time that don't seem to interfere with that task as you become more skilled in it. And if you look at some of the um, neuroscientific work on this topic, like there's a, this paper by Poldrack et al., they look at a particular dual task um, <laughs> while the participants were in an fMRI scanner, and they found that um, 
when you compare the novice participant to the skilled participant, the same person, that there seems to be a decrease in activation from the prefrontal for the prefrontal areas, the same areas that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, dorsal lateral prefrontal areas. Um, so this is what happens by degree. You get this slow change um, from attentive action to skilled action. But, um, but what I want to claim is that at the end of this process, you get a different type of action from attentive action, and you get this thing that I, that I want to call and other people call automatic action. Okay. One reason to think that automatic action is different in kind from controlled behavior or behavior that benefits from attention is um, by looking at what other theorists have said about it. So for example, um, there's a nice review by Lauren Sailing and James Phillips who looked at 20 years, I believe, of papers on the topic. And they conclude this. Automatic processes involve qualitatively distinct processing in the form of superior algorithms when compared with controlled processing. They also say there is extensive evidence in the functional imaging literature that is fMRI and similar um, that the neural substrate for automatic processing is distinct from that involved in controlled processing. So if you believe Sailing and Phillips, then when skilled behaviors go through this process of becoming more automatic at the end of that process, they actually take on this categorical change where they become fully automatic. They no longer benefit from attention. All right. Um, so why should anybody think that skilled behaviors, when they reach that level, constitute action? All right. So my reasoning for this is that, first of all, they're complex, gold-ranked behaviors. Um, so I list the... Some of oh, two of the ta- two of the experiments that I mentioned, the Spelke et al. and the Poldrack et al. Um, the tasks that beca- that I am claiming became automatic are writing from dictation and um, a serial reaction time task, which I can talk more about if you want. But um, anyhow, these are complex goal-directed behaviors. Um, Oh, yeah. <laughs> and moreover, these are complex goal-directed behaviors that come about um, by virtue of an intention by the participant to perform those behaviors. So it's the presence of an intention that mark out this behavior as an action rather than as a, a mere reflex. It may otherwise look like a reflex. Okay, so this is enough, I think, to satisfy the working definition of action that I gave at the beginning of the talk which is that an action is defined as a movement of the body resulting from specific mental preparation and aimed at some goal that the agent desires to achieve. So I think it satisfies all of those conditions. All right. Um, Why not think that these automatic skilled behaviors use attention? The first part of this reasoning is that attention is thought to be a limited resource. So there have been papers that argue that attention is not a centralized resource, but I'm not claiming that. I'm just claiming that it's a a limited resource. It's limited in some respect. Um, Okay, why does this matter? (laughs) This matters because there's an assumption, actually, in most of this literature, with the exception of the Spelke paper, that because it's a limited resource, um, if you have one attention-involving task, very demanding task, and you add another um, attention-involving task to it, it's necessarily going to interfere with the first task. Um, so there is, there is a, actually a presumption of some shared, some shared resources. That doesn't mean that there's a single central area of resource distribution, but at least that there is a sharing of a limited resource. Um, so conversely, if you get no interference at all between 
those two tasks and one of the tasks you know to be attentionally demanding, then the presumption is that the second task must not be using attention. Okay, so that's part of the reason. The other part of the reasoning um, is, this, is this thing that I mentioned about um, Sailing and Phillips, that this review, and um, I, I talked so far just about them, but actually, if you look at Poldrack et al., if you look at Lee et al., Lee, um, has, Fei Lee has, I think, six or seven papers on the topic already, they all, they all assume that wh when they show this change in, in interference, that they were what they're showing is a change in attention. So this is a totally um, standard view of the dual task experiments that I'm presenting. Okay. All right, another part of the reasoning, finally, is that um, although at first you get just this neural shift away from the dorsolateral prefrontal areas, or just prefrontal areas in general, um, that ultimately you get a, um, a different neural categorical basis, which is where that Sailing and Phillips paper comes in. All right. So I think the reasoning that I've given so far on this slide um, is adequate to believe that skilled behaviors are a special form of action distinct from attentive action and reflexive behavior. However, many of you will be most interested in how this story intersects with um, moral responsibility. So I'm going to talk about moral responsibility in two respects now. The first is to try to provide some independent reasoning to believe in this alternative thesis. And then I will also talk about some implications for moral responsibility. So it'll come up in two different ways. All right, so first I'll try to supply some independent reason to believe in the alternative thesis from moral responsibility. Okay, to follow my considerations on moral responsibility throughout the talk, you probably, I'm not sure, but I think you probably have to accept this lemma. If one is moral, morally responsible for X, and X is a movement of the body, then X is an action. What I mean by that is that you can't be held morally responsible for movement of your body unless it's an action. It's just another way of saying the same thing. So you can think about that and see if you agree. But that's just a presumption that I have. I don't think a lot hangs on it, but, well, sorry, all of this hangs on it. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's very controversial, I should say. Um, okay, so um, further, Within the domain of bodily movements, if Y, that is equality of X, is not required for moral responsibility, then it's not required for action. All right. Okay, that is, if one does not need a particular quality in order to be held morally responsible <coughs> for a bodily movement, then one does not need that quality in order to act because there must be some action that you were held morally responsible for that didn't have that quality. Okay. All right, what quality might I be thinking is not required for moral responsibility that could provide independent reason to accept the alternative thesis over Wu's dichotomy? The selection of one out of more than one target response pairings. This is discussed in the moral responsi responsibility literature under the principle of alternative possibilities, famously rejected by Harry Frankfurt. The principle of alternative possibilities is that one can be held morally responsible in the case that one had alternative possibilities to a particular behavioral response. 
so-called Frankfurt examples were intended to convince the reader that one might be held responsible even in the case that one had no alternatives to a particular behavioral response. One of these examples involves a man named Jones who intended to kill another man, Smith, but who, unbeknownst to him, had no option but to kill Smith. Frankfurt held that Jones should be held morally responsible for killing Smith. All right, so the Jones example has been updated by um, <coughs> David Hunt, which is where this quotation comes from. David Hunt, in this more recent paper, argues that um, in favor of the Frankfurt examples, that we hold people responsible, this is a quote from Hunt, sorry, we hold people responsible for what they do habitually when no identifiable decision is present. That is, if we hold people morally responsible for behaviors that derive from habit, where one is not selecting one from many alternatives, that is, when you're acting from habit, that means that you're not acting because of a particular stimulus and an intentional response to that stimulus, you're acting because of your habit. Um, all right. Um, so you're not selecting one out of many alternatives, so surely you didn't need alternatives in order to be held morally responsible. All right, so Hunt's updated Frankfurt example involves Jones, the hardened criminal, for whom killing is a habitual response. As <coughs> Hunt says, Jones could decide against murdering Smith, but murder is the path of least resistance for him. Deviating from it would require a certain mental effort. Imagine then a mechanism that blocks neural pathways, but owing to a fantastic coincidence, the single pathway that remains unblocked is precisely the route the man's thoughts would be following anyway. So I find it convincing that Jones should be held morally responsible for killing Smith in this case, um, which means that one need not have alternatives to be held morally responsible. So if all of this reasoning is correct, you don't need to have alternatives in order to be held morally responsible. What does that mean? Well, if you accept the lemma above, then you also don't need to have alternatives in order to be acting. Because if you can be held morally responsible, you must have been acting. Okay, so that's how it all connects up. Um, how would all of that give anyone any reason to believe in the alternative thesis? Well, it doesn't necessarily provide positive reason to believe in the alternative thesis. What it provides is a reason to side with the alternative thesis rather than um, Wu's dichotomy. Because Wu's dichotomy um, is based on this presumption that you need alternatives. You need this many, many problem in order for something to count as action. But if you don't need alternatives in order to be held morally responsible, and to be morally responsible, you need to have acted, then you don't need alternatives in order to act after all. So this could be held as some independent reason to favor the alternative thesis <coughs> over Wu's dichotomy. So I say there um, basically what I just said. All right. So combining the evidence that I offered on the last three slides, um, I've argued that essential to action, first of all, is intention rather than flexibility, arguing against Wu, um, and against the idea that, um, that action relies on cognitive selection. I argued, second of all, that skilled behavior counts as action, but that it doesn't use attention. And then finally, um, I claimed that you can be held morally responsible without the flexibility of alternatives, and so you can act without that flexibility. Okay, so I conclude from all of that evidence um, that there are forms of action that do not require attention, such as action through skilled behavior. If you wish to fill in the alternative thesis, then you could do so as follows. So these are just more, um, kind of more details that aren't necessary to, so the alternative thesis in its most basic form is just the claim that you can have these um, actions that don't count as either attentive actions or reflexive behaviors. 
Um, but if you wanted to say a little bit more about what the relationship between attention and action is, this is a filling in. So Odmar Newman, who I mentioned at the beginning as the person who predated Wu in describing the relationship between attention and action by about 30 years, um, as I said there, he thinks that attention is something that optimizes action but is not necessary for action. So he does this by giving an analogy with trains, actually, with an analogy with the scheduling of trains. So he says, if, if, you, have a, if you have a limited resource, like let's say a train track, that um, multiple trains use, and you want to prevent the trains getting into some kind of accident on that train track. You have, he says you have two options. <coughs> the first option is that you can schedule the trains in advance. Um, so you decide who, which train can be on, which, on that track at what time. The second option is that when a train gets to the track, you don't schedule it in advance, but you set it up so that when a train gets onto the track, the track is closed off for other trains. So it's not possible for another train to get onto the track, and so then you prevent the accident that way. Okay, I'll, I'll read his quote. So he says, there are essentially two ways to solve this problem, the problem of train wrecks. One is to devise a schedule such that the two trains will never be close to each other on the same track. The other method is to divide the network up into sections and let a train enter a section, entering a section block the section for other trains. The first allows a better usage of the limited resource, that is this, this advanced scheduling. The second needs less communication and coordination is much less or error prone. So these, the, the analogy with attention and automatic, attentive action and automatic action um, goes as follows. Attentive action is most similar to, or attentive action can benefit from scheduling, whereas automatic action does not benefit from scheduling. So attentive action um, is a type of action where you can plan in advance um, how to perform the action, whereas automatic action, Newman wants to, to say by analogy, is the kind of action where you can't um, plan in advance when, how to perform it and how, and how to perform other acts with respect to it. Um, it just occurs. Similarly, automatic action is the kind of thing that proceeds by itself and prevents other, thing, other actions from, from occurring. And so if this you know, reasoning is all right, then, um, then the advantage of attention is not so much that it enables action in the first place, but rather that it just um, makes better use of the limited resource. You have a... Um, a better distribution of all of your cognitive resources if you look at how long each action is going to take in advance and you decide what order to do them in than if you just let them proceed um, on their own and don't allow two actions to occur at the same time. <coughs> However, the advantage of automatic action, which is something that attentive action doesn't have, is that it's less error prone. Um, you can't perform two actions at once. So remember how this example I gave of the, the water glass and washing your hands. This actually happened to me recently. So... I don't know if you guys have things like this happen to you, but I, uh, I wanted to wash my hands and drink a glass of water at the same moment. And I had soap in my hand and I had a glass in the other hand. And um, this was a behavioral train wreck, right? I can't perform either action with this situation. And so what I did was I attended to what I was doing rather than not attending to what I was doing and set down the glass and washed my hands and then got a glass of water. Okay, um, so that, that behavioral train wreck probably wouldn't have happened if I was allowing my actions to proceed automatically, um, because if I were just automatically getting a, water to get a glass of water to drink, I would not have also reached for the soap. That has nothing to do with getting a glass of water. But I was trying to do two things at once, um, inattentively. 
Okay, so the benefit of automatic action is this, that it's less error prone, and you don't need to coordinate it. You can just let it proceed by itself. Okay, so this is Newman's story about what the true role of attention and action is, which I'm in general agreement with. Um, I think that it's likely that attention just optimizes action and that it's not necessary for action. Um, so instead of settling with this dichotomy between a sense of action and reflexive behavior, I, um, I instead suggest this four-step account of action. So none of these four steps, in my view, constitute reflexive behavior. They all count as action. Okay. The first is attentive action with conscious targets. Um, this is the most standard sense of action. I'm thirsty. I want a glass of water. I reach for the water. I fill up the glass. Um, I'm aware of the glass. I'm attending to the glass. All right. The second sense is um, attentive action with unconscious targets. This is an example that mostly comes through reflecting on blindsight patients but there's also experiments with normal participants that yield some of the same reasoning. And um, what you find in these blindsight patients is that they're not aware of the target of their action, but then they may nonetheless be aware that they're attentively acting or not. Um, but the key thing is that they're not aware of, or they're not, sorry, they're not conscious of, I should say, um, what they're acting on. So they may be um, able to walk through a small maze, for example, without consciously without reporting that they consciously perceive that means. Okay, so Wu accepts that both of these types of action um, exist. The difference between me and Wu is whether or not these two latter things are action. So as I've argued so far, I think that there's this other type of action, <coughs> automatic action through skilled behavior. Um, what Wu says in his earlier work is that this type of action counts as a reflex. Um, a very sophisticated <laughs> reflex, but a reflex nonetheless. In his later work, that is this forthcoming book um, that he's working on, and actually a, a paper from last year, he says that, um, that these are still actions because they require an attentive mental action in order to take place. We can talk more about that if you like. I don't find that, um, <coughs> that a very promising approach. All right, finally... Um, this is the most controversial one, and I'm not sure if I'll actually continue to hold this view, but I'm just going to put it out there. There could be another form of action, I think, um, which I want to call owned action, which is action that, unlike automatic action through skilled behavior, doesn't benefit from, um, from an intention on your part um, and may or may not be automatic, but nonetheless, after the fact, you, you say of that behavior that it fits your goals and your desires and your beliefs and you're willing to accept responsibility for that action. I think that it's possible that we could count that as action. Um, a problem with, with that is that um, there's been some experimental philosophy on, on this topic and uh, I believe that they found that the more emotionally salient the, the consequences the more likely you are to attribute the behavior to yourself, to your own, um, to your own act. So, so the fact that you are willing to accept a behavior as yours, to own that action, um, well, anyhow, it's, it's complicated at least. So, um, 
So I think we'd have to be careful if we were going to allow that to count as action and to look out for, for cases in which people misattribute um, behavior as theirs. And I don't know exactly what it would mean um, for someone to say, yes, that is my action, um, but I just want to leave that open as a possible fourth, fourth type of action. Okay. Is it just action happening and then you assigning attention post-fact? Or you're not attention, but action post-fact. Oh, intention. Post-fact. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Uh, another way of putting it is that um, maybe objective measures of your intention would seem to show that your att- intention is absent, but you may nonetheless want to say that it was yours. And maybe that's because you, you think that your you know, your goals, your habits, desires, whatever, have led you to a state where that could have easily been yours. <laughs> and you think you just see some way that that could have been a behavior you would have done or you might as well have done or, or whatever. I don't know. So it could be, could be that this is just an epistemic point that I'm just questioning whether there are real, any good objective measures of intention, um, but I'm not sure. So it's controversial for a reason. <laughs> it's controversial to me too, but but I at least think that it's possible that there's a fourth, even weaker type than the skilled behavior. Okay, so um, actually, let me go back. So this is an overall picture of how one might conceive of the relationship between an attention and action. Um, I motivated the talk by saying that this had interesting implications for neuroethics and neural law, which I am going to give a couple of cases of um, next, or imaginary cases of next. Um, yeah, okay, I'm just going to proceed. All right, so the first of these is um, the case of the skilled boxer. The picture that I presented so far leaves it unresolved um, of how to assign moral responsibility in the case of action (coughs) through skilled behavior. Um, One might think that that in these cases the absence of attention points to a diminished responsibility, but I don't think that this is obvious. Take, for example, a skilled boxer who kills his or her opponent with a single punch. So imagine that this skilled (coughs) boxer um, punches... This isn't exactly what the picture shows, but... um, punches the side of this lady's head, and somehow that results in that lady's death, um, versus an unskilled boxer doing the same thing. All right. (coughs) Should we hold the skilled boxer more or less responsible than the unskilled boxer who does the same? My intuition side with the skilled boxer having greater responsibility, since he or she has greater control over his or her punches. Adina Roski's in a recent paper argues that we can replace the concept of um, free will as being central to, um, to moral responsibility with the concept of control as being central to moral responsibility. That idea of Adina Roski's could fit here if we thought that there are actually two types of control. So you might think that there is cognitive control and that that's distinct from bodily control. And so what um, what Wayne Wu talks about is cognitive control. It is control through attention. But you might think that as you become more skilled in a behavior, that you develop more bodily control over your action. So, for example, the skilled boxer, compared to the unskilled boxer, may have less cognitive control over their behaviors. So the skilled boxer, once they enter the ring, may be less able to decide 
whether or not to throw a punch than the unskilled boxer uh, because they've practiced that behavior so many times. However, the skilled boxer compared to the unskilled boxer may have much more bodily control. They may be able to control the direction and force of their punch much better than the unskilled boxer. So that difference in bodily control may account for this intuition I have, I don't know if you guys have it, that the, that the skilled boxer has more, more moral responsibility in this imaginary case. Um, why so? Because even though they have less cognitive control, they have much more bodily control. And in this case, bodily control is what makes a difference because both are trying to, to make a punch to down their opponent, but not a fatal punch. And so it's crucial the direction and force of the punch. And so bodily control matters a lot more for, for, that, for that difference. So if you're trying to figure out um, what the relationship is between attention and responsibility, you're going to have to figure out which of these two is really crucial to the case and which um, of the two the person may or may not have. Okay. So... That was to cover these cases of, um, of action through skilled behavior, but you might be interested in the case that I talked about at the very beginning of the talk, this case of ADHD or super ADHD. So I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that somebody who thought um, action requires attention, if they accept that lemma that I gave, would need to say that the super ADHD criminal is not responsible for their behavior. I also said that if you give a negative answer to that question, namely, if you don't think attention is necessary for action, then it's unclear whether or not the super ADHD criminal should or should not be held responsible for their behavior. So here's a reason to think that, um, that even if you give a negative answer, they should still not be held responsible for their behavior. All right. And that is um, the case of the super ADHD driver. So would we hold a driver with super ADHD more or less morally responsible than a driver with normal attentional capacities? Would we hold them responsible at all? Imagine a case in which someone with super ADHD, that is a, a case where they have no control over the direction of their mind. Anything that comes within any of their sensory capacities um, that's somehow naturally salient um, would distract them. And imagine that they hit or get into some kind of accident, and we're comparing them to a driver with normal attentional capacities. <coughs> Is that person morally responsible for hitting that person while driving? I think that a first kind of a first kind of inclination that one might have is to say, okay, so the super ADHD person may not be responsible for their action of hitting the person, but they're still responsible for getting in the car in the first place. They're somehow responsible for neglect for their um, their failure to um, realize that they had this, or if, let's just assume that they know that they have super ADHD. Their failure to accept um, that they needed to do something other than drive, basically, if they have this condition. So, so yeah, you might think um, super ADHD person can't be held responsible for their actions, but they can be held responsible for, um, for failing to, to recognize their disorder or whatever. I think that's a reasonable position for someone with normal ADHD. 
So you might think that someone with normal ADHD who gets into a car and puts their cell phone on their dashboard or something like that, that th there may be some neglect going on there because the fact that they, if they know they have ADHD, then they should probably take precautions before they get into the car to prevent them from being distracted. But I don't think that the person with super ADHD is like that. Um, why? Because um, the person with super ADHD doesn't have a moment before they get into the car that, that has less distraction. So the person with normal ADHD has moments of more distraction, moments of less distraction when they're in a car. This is very attentionally demanding and very, they could be distraction matters a lot. But before they get into the car, they may have a quiet moment where they reflect on the past, fact that they have um, ADHD and they have opportunity then to prepare for the more distracting moments later. But the person with super, a super ADHD never has those, quiet, those moments before. They never have control over their own mind. Similarly, you might think that um, somebody with somebody who's intoxicated um, is kind of like a similar case, I guess. Someone who's intoxicated <coughs> has an obligation to, to look for, to have, to have looked for a sober driver before they went out and became intoxicated. And that, so they're somehow um, guilty of neglect also, but neglect in a different kind of way because they, they didn't prepare for an entirely different course of action. Um, but again, the super ADHD person doesn't have any moment in which they're not suffering from ADHD. <laughs> um, so they, can, they can't even prepare um, to be less, they can't pre prepare to be less distracted like the ADHD person. They can't prepare to, to do a different course of action altogether like the intoxicated person could have. So these reflections on the super ADHD person lead me to believe that um, cognitive control might be a condition for neglect in the first place. That is, um, I don't think that attention and cognitive control are necessary for any individual case of action, but they may be necessary to be held accountable for actions altogether. They may be necessary um, for one to be thought to act. Um, so then cognitive control and attention may be preconditions for a person, but not for an, a particular act. All right. So to say a little bit more about this, um, I wanted to remark on the fact that Tyler Burge says that perceptual constancies are a mark of the cognitive, um, but if one held that attention is a mark of the cognitive, which is something that I do in other work of mine, this would be a reason to believe that attention is yes, necessary for you to act in the first place, which is what I just said. All right. So the considerations that I gave on the last two slides are still ongoing. Um, this is you know, new work that I haven't really done yet. Um, so for now, I'd just like to end by saying that although I do not find attention to be necessary for action, which is something that came up in the last couple of slides, sorry, in the first few slides, um, they do think that it might provide something crucial to agency. Just what it does provide is, is still unclear. So that's the end. Thanks. We have about half an hour for questions. Yeah. Um, just uh, to clarify two things that you've brought up. So you're saying that cognitive control versus bodily control. Having bodily control, uh, as was the case with the boxers, uh, if you have less bodily control, then you're less liable to be held for your actions versus having less cognitive control? Am I understanding that correctly? 
-hmm. then the boxer, the unskilled boxer has less bodily control than the skilled boxer, whereas the skilled boxer has less cognitive control than the unskilled boxer. Yeah. So having less bodily control means that you're less liable with your actions. Um, in that divide, are we saying that the ADHD person, the super ADHD person, has less bodily control or less cognitive control? Okay, good. So actually I, um, I decided not to apply that divide to that case because I think it's, it's complicated. So if, if the, I think to, to develop these kinds of bodily controls or um, I'm not sure if that's the best description of what I want to say, but anyhow, um, a control over the kind of conditions of your behavioral response rather than on whether you initiate the response. Um, control over that I think occurs by first, in the first place, having an attentive response. Um, so I'm not sure if you could develop a kind of skilled reaction without first attending. And if that's correct, then the super ADHD person isn't going to have the same kind of bodily control in the way that I specified it as, um, as someone who has some attentional capacities. However, um, you might think that, that that's just untrue, that you need attention in the first place to develop these um, special types of responses, and in that case, they could. But it's, it's um, I left it open in that example whether or not they're an expert driver or just a driver, but they're just someone who got in a car, got distracted and hit someone, um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to claim that the super ADHD person had no responsibility. I don't know if I ever actually came out and said that, but I want to claim they have no responsibility in that case because um, <coughs> of these reflections on not even fulfilling the conditions of neglect. Yeah. So even in the earlier cases and all across your examples, attention precisely was never a condition for being responsible because even in the skilled cases, lack of attention does not imply lack of responsibility because intention is still there. If we take out intention, then there is absolutely no responsibility whatsoever, right? Because uh, even if you have normal attention span, since attention is no more a case of responsibility, uh, assigning responsibility, then whether you have attention, you don't have attention, that does not become the question at all. The question becomes, uh, the question of responsibility becomes whether you have intention or not. And if you hit somebody accidentally, whatever your attention span is, if you don't have intention, then you don't have responsibility, whether you have super ADHD, normal ADHD, or a normal attention span. Would that be correct? Well, so what did you think about the case of neglect, where you may not have any intention to hit them, but you nonetheless entered into a behavior that you knew could have that consequence? In that case, the super ADHD person can also be considered neglectful if they just don't lock themselves in their house. That because <coughs> in any case we are assuming that the super ADHD person does not have super forgetfulness, so they are aware of their condition. Yeah. So at all times they should be at least aware of their conditions, whether they are distracted with it, whatever. So it could be considered a case that they should be kept within away from cars, and they should never buy a car, and they should always have those precautions in place. If we say they never had time to put those precautions in place whatsoever. The, the mere fact that they're aware of their conditions gives us some, makes some case for neglect. So I think I just disagree with that because I think that even though they're aware, they have, 
I might be, this, this may be an impossible case, but what I'm supposing is that they have no control over their mind. So even though they may be aware that they have super ADHD, have, they, they can't even control whether they not, or not they lock the door to their house. Um, and so if they can't even, <laughs> if they can't even direct their mind so that they can be sure to execute that behavior, then, I mean, you can go all the way back, right, to... Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I understand your point in that. Yeah. Uh, the only question then uh, I'm asking is that with a normal person, because we are saying since since attention we have we have established that attention is no more a case for responsibility, and here now the question becomes intention versus neglect. Yeah. And so we are saying that a normal attention span person somehow has a higher level of neglect because now intention has been taken out of this case as well. So we are saying it's a question of how much neglect you can appropriate to the two cases. So in the case of the normal sanction person, we are saying neglect is a factor. So would, yeah. would it be an axiom that attention, though not a measure of intention or action, is a measure of neglect? Not, I mean, that may be something I may otherwise agree with you, but I don't think that that's um, a result of what I said, because I didn't say that um, that it's less attention that leads to less neglect, but rather that the absence of attention altogether in a person could lead to them not having the conditions necessary to hold them for neglect. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean the other one, but it, but, it, but it totally sounds reasonable to me that if you had less attention, then you might, it may be reasonable to hold you less responsible for neglect. Uh, but I don't think that's implied by what I said. Yeah, I think Roger, you were next. Uh, I, I had a couple of questions about Wu, yeah. uh, whose work I don't really know. Um, one is whether, in response to your Frankfurt-style case, which is meant to show that his dichotomy won't work, he might say, well, I didn't mean that many, many problems require alternatives, it just requires that the agent thinks that there are alternatives. <coughs> so that, that's the first question. Yeah. And the second question was <coughs> about uh, what he now says about um, automatic action. Because I, mean, I guess when, when you were describing the case of the driver, I was thinking, you know, what on earth would he say about that? And then you said, well, he'd, he'd say it's a reflex. But, um, and that does seem to me very kind of problematic because there just seems to be quite a big difference between, you know, the, the case you showed with the knee mm -hmm. flying up and driving. But now he seems to be saying, um, well, okay, there is automatic action, but uh, that's okay because there's an attentive mental action <coughs> involved in it. Could you say a bit more about what, what that's meant to mean? Yeah, so, um, okay, so the first thing first. Um, so this, there's this question of whether or not um, Wayne Wu needs imagined possibility or real possibility in order to make his case. Um, and I think that he wants real possibilities, and that's because he wants to say that there's this kind of metaphysical basis for action, which is that there are alternatives, and if you have no alternatives, you have no action. And that is somehow like um, the essence of action. And so when he says over here, um, if these creatures are in possession of a variety of preset stimulus response mappings, they may exhibit blah, 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 but their behavior does not count as action for they are driven what are essentially a set of reflexes. So 
I, I take it that he thinks that the essence of action is to have alternatives and the absence of real alternatives is reflex. Because then you basically have a stimulus driving a response with no internal control at all. And so then it's... Um, yeah, but I, I guess I wasn't saying that that is his position. I was saying, oh, yeah. could he respond to you? Oh, could he? Yes, okay, sorry. Um, So could he say that it was enough for them to imagine that they have alternatives, and that's really what's crucial um, to action? They, I, mean, they, I mean, you say imagine, I mean, they could reasonably believe. Yeah, oh yeah, okay. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how that would, how that would work, so... Um, yeah, I guess, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that question yet, because I think um, I'd have to see like what powers they still have, because they're, they're imagining some kind of power, but they don't have full, but they must have something to still believe that, so I guess I'd have to know the extent to which they, they still have remaining power <laughs> over their mental life. Um, but, okay, yeah, so, so he would need yeah. something analogous to Frankfurt's story about secondary desires or identification or something to fill in the gap. I can see that might be problematic. But even in the Frankfurt, the Frankfurt story, he doesn't say that they they have a kind of illusion about it. They're just willing, or maybe they do have an illusion. But you know, the addict, the drug addict, is just they just they're like, well, this is me. <laughs> like, I'm a drug addict, or you know, or, or I'm not. Um, but I don't know if they think they have control over it, or whether they're just willing to ex- to I guess own I was it. Imagining a case in which yeah. they did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'm, I'll think about it. Um, and then the, the other one. Um, okay. So what what does Wu say in his like more recent work? Um, so I think he says something like this. Um, he believes that um, attention is necessary for action in general, and the cases that I presented are still actions even though they have an automatic component, because at the beginning of that act, beginning of that automatic component, you have the selection of an intention, and so you have a mental action. Um, and so, yeah, that's still an action, and it still requires attention because you're um, attending to <coughs> one of many possible intentions. Now, I can't remember if, if it's intention that's the outcome of that, of that or, or something else, but um, for him, but the reason that I that, I'm, that I don't find that to be a very promising route, I mean, I know that the working definition I gave was bodily action anyhow, but I don't want to merely say, oh, you're not allowed to do that because that's my working definition. I think that there's, there's something genuinely fishy about, about that response, and I think it is that, um, I don't think it's the best description of mental action that you have a lot of targets and responses and you're matching them together. Um, which is what he thinks attention has to do. And I don't even think that it's that you have multiple intentions and then you're selecting one out. An intention occurs, it's yours, <laughs> and that drives your action. I don't know what it means to have an intention and for that to drive an action, but at least I think it's, um, I'm sort of relying on the fact that I think most people believe that there is something like intention that matters here. And um, yeah, so, so I don't have like a full response to, to that move of his yet. It's a new move, like I said, but, um, 
I just don't find it convincing that that's really what's going on, that you're in attending to an intention, and that's how you acted. Um, so. so can I just ask one thing on this? Because yeah. I, I was going to ask one of those questions. Um, similar, Roger. So can you say a bit more about, I mean, I'm on your side, but I thought yeah. the most promising way of explaining these sorts of phenomena were as ref complex reflexes. Okay. And so, and I wonder why he abandoned this case. And this sort of idea I had in my mind was, you know, if you're, I was riding my bike the other day and this bird flew straight at my head. You know, yeah. I moved my head quickly like this. Now, this isn't like a, a kind of tendon reflex. It's a sort yeah. of complex behaviour. And another example of these is a kind of flow experiences where yeah. you, you develop a very complex set of motor responses to, to various stimuli and then, you know, frees up your attention for other things. Yeah. And, and those do seem to me to be complex programmed responses to certain kinds of stimuli <coughs> and they, they are kind of a reflex yeah. um, so why did he give up on the, I'm not suggesting this is right but just to see yeah. down more plausibility than his, his later, later view so what, what, why, what, why did he give up the idea that they were... So maybe I should say this slightly differently, I think that he, he proposed a note, an alternative response <laughs> right. so I think he wants to say that it's either reflex right. or it's mental action uh, but I think you can probably say like. Well, why wouldn't you more. say? Um, why wouldn't you say these are complex, you know, reflexive responses? Why wouldn't I? Yeah. Then. Um. Because I guess when you're driving as well, you 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 know you, as you become more skilled, you're programmed just to respond very quickly to situations. You don't have to think yeah. about it. So it's like a kind of a reflex. Yeah. <coughs> I mean, I think that it's similar to reflex and similar to, act, to attentive action. That's kind of why it sits, at least in my picture, it sits in between them. Um, but I think that what it has that, what we standardly take to be reflexes don't have is um, something like a responsiveness to your current goals. So if you're a really, really good friend who is very sensitive to pain, um, does this reflex experiment where they tap your knee and you kick them. Um, it may be that you had the current goal not to kick them, but you couldn't help yourself and you feel really bad because they're very sensitive to pain and whatever. Um, but the cases of skilled behavior aren't really like that. It's um, when you initiate your, those skilled behaviors or those what I want to call actions, you are doing that because of it's relevant to the situation or something like that um, because you currently want to achieve that behavior. Um, so that's a sense in which it's driven by intention rather than being driven by a, um, a worldly stimulus. It may be that your intention itself is somehow driven by um, some worldly conditions. So there may be, it may be that you know, you're presented with a car and I don't know, you need to get somewhere. And that's what really you know, drives you to get in the car and, and to do your skilled behavior of driving. But it's at least a less direct route than, than what you see with you know, hitting the knee and then kicking. Right. I, I'm, I'm sort of on the same, on the same thing, maybe that the, the end of your response to Roger. Um, yeah. So, so, so Julian's example, the, 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 this idea of being programmed, is sort of similar to the lines I was thinking. This the idea of 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 acting on a habit. So, I mean, the example of getting up and brushing my teeth, as it were, without thinking. And it, 
and, and the issue there seems to be, and, and that seems to matter here as well, is to what extent are they things, there's only things that I did in some sense, but whether or not they're my actions in any, in any full sense. Um, and it seems to me that, that, that one of the things that we might be trying to do here is to, is to say, well, look, they're those problematic cases are uh, the cases where they're sort of bought. So how do we handle these borderline cases, whether or not, so it turns on whether or not we want to say of the cleaning of my teeth or of the programmed actions, pro programmed things that I did, whether or not they were my actions. Um, and I wondered whether, I mean, and there is something, there seems to be something to the idea that, that Wu has and this idea that I think you were getting at the end, which is that, look, if, if, if it makes sense to attribute to me any tension in any of those cases, and I, and I think there's sort of maybe a sort of a scope problem about what exactly the intention needs to be that we're talking about. So it seems pretty clear to me that what I didn't intend to do, that I didn't have any intention, say in the program case, to do specific things. But that what I got, what, what was initiated was a series of actions that I sort of do on, as it were, on automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's an intent. Why we might think that they count as actions is because there's an intention in there somewhere. There's an intention to start driving. And it seems to me that, that in the analysis of that intention, that you could plausibly say, look, there needs to be an attentiveness. That indeed, that it's some sort of attention. In order for the very possibility of having an intention, sorry, there needs to be attention at some point, somewhere. Mm -hmm. in order to have an intention. Mm -hmm. right? So I must have got up and meant to move towards the bathroom to clean my teeth. And so I must have been attending to getting up or and get attending to putting something in process. And that's part and parcel of the intending to put this process into okay. place. So, so are you kind of presenting a possible objection to my view um, along the lines of Wu's later response. So I that so. I if so. I'm going to say that intention is really what's crucial to action, then it just seems like I'm going to have to say attention's there too. It's not yeah. 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 um, to, so to get the intention off the ground. Yeah. So it just it kind of depends on like how um, how early that attention has to be there. If it has to be there at some point in the causal stream, then I could say, okay, I already said I agreed with that because I think that, you know, to to act at all, it may be a precondition that you um, that you have the ability to attend at some point. But I don't think you want to say that. I think you want to say specifically in this series of events you had to attend. Um, I think that might be right. I just don't think that it works out the way that Wu says. So the reason that I said um, I want to look at bodily action instead of mental action, in part, is because I think attention is a mental action. And so there is a sort of circular question of whether or not attention is necessary for the mental action of attending, <laughs> um, which I think is uninteresting. And so you might think um, that somehow intention just seems, or attention just seems like um, the application of intention or something like that. So if you have the application of intention, you had attention. Um, but it, um, another way of putting my response to Wu is that I just, I don't think that that fact fits in with the other claims that he's trying to make. So I also could, I think, agree that um, that your intention maybe is attention, <laughs> but it's not. Um, 
well, okay, then attention might be, actually maybe, I, maybe I'm not allowed to say that, because then attention is necessary for um, action if an intention is necessary for action. Um, but, yeah, okay, so. The current case I'm thinking of, I mean, I'm thinking of the sort of, the, the uh, various sport cases, and particularly uh, like a, a batter in baseballs. Yeah. Right? So we might say, we might, we might say, look, there's all sorts of intentions and attentions that need to be present in order for that person, that the bat, batter, to be said to have been batting. But then we might say, within all that, there's a whole bunch of program stuff which gets kick-started and that couldn't, that couldn't take place if he wasn't paying a certain kind of attention, yeah. um, which is very close to what he's intending in these kinds of cases. Okay. I think I'm going to have to say that, that I just don't agree with that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I do agree with that, but I think if I want to hold all the other things that I said, you know, in the context of, of doing a good representation of this view or whatever, I think that I would have to say that um, that intention does not have to be attentive. So you can apply an intention without attending. Mm. I think that's okay, the only way so to be consistent. Um, Jane, last question. Um, so I'm sorry about the super ADHD case again. Mm -hmm. um, I've come a couple times. Uh, I, I'm just kind of suspicious of this case. And Whether it's physically it's possible? Um, sort of. Okay. Uh, so I expressed my skepticism, and then and I was yeah. what I was going to ask mainly is whether you think you need the case for what you're doing in your okay. project. The reason I'm suspicious of it is because I'm not really sure super ADHD is a person. Okay. Um, and if, if I'm right to think this, this entity is not actually a person, that really cheaply buys you a lot of claims about what they don't have, about intentions and things like that, and more, including more responsibility. Because okay. uh, what you're describing, if I'm getting it around my head at all, is basically a stream of phenomenal experiences which aren't really bound together by anything. Right? There, there's no selective attention. Really. There's, <coughs> there's no ability to construct a narrative, an internal subjective perspectival narrative. There's no ability to to sort of in a deliberate sense call up memories or make comparisons to other experiences. There's none of the marks we can think of as, as constituting psychological identity over time. So I'd be inclined to think this isn't a person. This is just a body that happens to be having um, a series of disconnected subjective experiences internally. But it's, it's not going to in any way meet leaving a person a really good, um, it seems to be a really clear empirical way to see this, to think of those. Um, Persistent vegetative state patients, the ones who, mm -hmm. who seem to be completely locked in and incapable of communicating in any way, but these are the ones where if you ask them to think about playing tennis or about being in a certain room in their house, they, they, you can read from fMRI um, right. that there's something going on there. And, and they have more capacity than super ADHD does. And that seems to suggest that super ADHD yeah. really just isn't a person in any meaningful sense that you use that word. So if I'm right about that, that it basically just buys you that this is, that, that gives you really easily that this is not an appropriate subject of terms like responsibility or attention because it's not a person. Those are terms we apply persons. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, so I guess, would you resist that? Or if you wouldn't resist that, do you think that there's another way to get the conclusions you were trying to get out of this case? You also said that it may not be helpful for I may not need it anyhow. Did you want to say? Oh, well, I was asking. I, I, oh, oh I, I lost, sorry. I, I got okay. distracted <laughs> the case. I lost track of exactly yeah. what it was doing in okay. the argument. Oh, OK. Well, actually, the, the cases at the end are not so much um, part of the argument mm -hmm. so much as an application of the considerations that I gave before. So I think um, the work that the research that I've done so far is mostly on this connection between attention and action. And I tried mm -hmm. to think, um, for the benefit of this talk, 
what that might mean for responsibility and how, yeah, because it's, it's just not obvious how responsibility is connected to um, considerations about action. Um, and so that's what the cases were. They were an attempt to apply to see what would happen if you did that and to see um, what other issues that might, that might raise. Um, but um, I think that I would resist what you said about the super ADHD person, sorry, super ADHD patient <laughs> not being a person. Um, I agree with you that, the, that those people who are thought to be in a persistent vegetative state but that can control um, perhaps whether or not they're experiencing playing tennis or whatever, who may actually have been in the minimally conscious state, seem to have something that the super ADHD person doesn't have. Um, however, the super ADHD person has many things <laughs> that they don't have um, that we might also think are important. So you mentioned that it doesn't seem like they would have any continuity to their experience, but I don't think that um, so I haven't fully thought this out, and it would be very interesting to kind of try to figure out what the super ADHD person would be like, what their experience would be like. And I don't think that your um, your description is is totally wrong by any means. It had a lot of plausible elements, but I do think that there could be an emergence of themes. And one reason I think that is because there's all of this work on um, perceptual learning. One of my um, advisors at Boston University, Takei Watanabe, from the psychology department, works on perceptual learning, and that's the kind of learning that occurs in your, your, let's just say your brain, um, when you're neither conscious of the stimulus that you're learning from, mm -hmm. nor attending to the stimulus you're learning from. Um, and so there are lots of constancies that, that emerge over time just because of exposure to particular stimuli. And so you can imagine that even somebody who can control their mind nevertheless has some bottom-up constancies that emerge because of the regularity of their environment. Um, and um, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes people talk about this through bottom-up attention, the kind of things that are salient to you that grab, you know, the, grab your mental resources, perhaps outside of your control. You can imagine that still being present um, for the super ADHD person. So normally ADHD is um, specifically not the absence of bottom-up attention, but the absence of this other thing, top-down attention, the ability to control your attention. So yeah, I think there may, may still be some continuities there. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, but at least they have conscious experience um, over time. Um, sorry, con continuous, let's say that. Continuous conscious experience, which is something that someone in the persistent vegetative state who's actually was probably in the minimally conscious state only has little flickers of experience and they're not um, reliable flickers. I think that's an important difference. Um, between the two, and, and that seems valuable, <laughs> having continuous experience. There are, yeah, it's so that one has one thing, the other has another. I don't know, if, I'm not ready to say they're not a person. Thank you very much. <laughs>